0: Welcome to the Preacher King. I want to give a warm welcome to all of our campus locations. I am so glad that you are here with me in Memphis, Tennessee. I apologize for the sunglasses. I'll try to take them off, but it is a bright, beautiful spring day here in Memphis. And I'm so glad that you have come to be a part of this series Martin Luther King Jr. was brutally assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4th, 1968. The night before he was assassinated, he actually delivered this particular message. And as I've been saying, my goal in this series is not for you to hear from Benji. I want you to hear from the preacher King. You listen to me quite a bit. I want his voice to be heard in this series. So I'm going to be reading his message, preaching his message, and every now and then I will jump off and offer some commentary or some things that I think is very significant for us living in the 21st century. But by and large, we're going to try to keep it the preacher king. He would say this on the night before his assassination. Something is happening in Memphis. Something is happening in our world. And you know, if I were standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole human history up until now, and Almighty God said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? King would say, I would take my mental flight by Egypt, and I would watch God's children in all of their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through, or rather, across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, on toward the Promised Land. And in spite of its magnificence, King would say, I would not stop there. I would move on by Greece and I would take my mind to Mount Olympus. And I would see Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. I would see them assembled around the Parthenon and I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discussed the great and eternal issues of reality, but I would not stop there. I would go on even to the great heyday of the Roman Empire and I would see developments around there through various emperors and leaders, but I wouldn't stop there. He said, I would even come up to the day of the Renaissance and get a quick picture of all that the Renaissance did for the cultural and aesthetic life of man, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even go by the way that the man for whom I am named had his habitat. And I would watch Martin Luther as he tacked the 95 thesis on the door at the church in Wittenberg, but I wouldn't stop there. Hey, little side note, by the way, Martin Luther King Jr. was born Michael King. His daddy was Michael King because King was a junior. But when he was five years old, Daddy King changed his name, and his son's name, to Martin Luther King after the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther. King would go on. I I would come up even to 1863, and I would watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. But I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the early 1930s and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of the nation and come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Of course, King was talking about Franklin D. Roosevelt, but I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, If you allow me to just live a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Church, let me jump off of the Preacher King for just a moment and ask you this question. Could you say the same? I believe part of maturing spiritually is actually understanding that God is sovereign. And God chose to have you born at this particular time. He chose that you would live your life right here in the 21st century. And I know that people often like to look back at the good old days and they have a tendency to romanticize the good old days, church. But let me tell you what I've discovered. The good old days weren't that good after all. And God has chosen us to be His people, to be a people of new hope for such a time as this. And in His sovereignty, He's placed us here. I'm reminded of that great verse in Esther four fourteen, And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. God has positioned us in a royal position to be a beacon of faith, hope, and love in many areas, but particularly in this area. What does it look like to be a beautifully diverse church? all gathered around the throne of God, rich and poor and middle-class, young and old, brown and black and white, all living for such a time as this. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. Church, this this is the title of the message that I've given it today. Dangerous, unselfishness. Think about those two words that King puts together. And he does so by pulling from that famous parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Lean in, here is a dead man walking. He's going to be dead, unfortunately, within 24 hours. But listen to what he says to us about dangerous unselfishness because I believe this is a very important word for us today. He refers to the Good Samaritan passage and he says the following. One day a man came to Jesus and he wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life. At points he wants to trick Jesus and show him that he knew little more than Jesus and that he could throw Jesus off base. Now that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical or theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled the question down from midair and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite? and a priest passed by on the other side of the road. They didn't help the man. And finally, a man by another race came by. He got down from his beast, and he decided not to be compassionate by proxy, but he got down with him. He administered first aid, and he helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying, this was a good man, this was a great man because he had the capacity, listen in church, to project the I into the thou and to be concerned about his brother. Now you know we use our imagination greatly to try and determine why the religious leaders, the priest and the Levite didn't stop. At times we say they were busy maybe going to a church meeting or maybe attending an ecclesiastical gathering. And they had to get down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law, that one who was engaged in religious ceremonials was not able to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me, the preacher king would say. It's possible that those men were afraid. Listen in, church, this is so good. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Miss King and I were first in Jerusalem, we rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on the road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as a setting for his parable. It's a winding and meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 feet above sea level, and by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you're about 2,200 feet below sea level it's a dangerous road in the days of Jesus it came to be known as the bloody pass and you know it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over at that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking and he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over lure them over for a quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was this, was if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you, tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? The question is not, if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? This this is that dangerous unselfishness that King was talking about just a moment ago. And if I might add, this is the dangerous unselfishness that I believe Christians need to learn to embody today, here and now. He would say, let us rise up tonight with greater readiness. Let us stand with greater determination. And let us move on in these powerful days, these days of challenge, to make America, what it ought to be. We have an opportunity to make America a better nation. King would then end this particular sermon with a story, a story that I find quite humorous. He says this. He says, you know, several years ago, I was in New York City autographing the first book that I had written. And while sitting there autographing books, a demented black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down, writing, and I said, yes. And the next minute I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by a demented woman. Now, let me be clear. This is not the humorous part. It gets humorous in a moment. He says, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to Harlem Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon and that blade had gone through and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was an edge from my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you're drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, they allowed me to move around in the wheelchair and in the hospital. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, mail that had come from all over the states and the world and kind letters that came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. The preacher king said, I had received one from the president and the vice president. I've forgotten those telegrams. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I've forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl, who was a student at White. Plains High School, and I looked at that letter, and I will never forget what it said. It simply said, Dear Dr. King, I'm a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. And she said, And while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering and I read that if you had only sneezed, you would have died. And I'm simply writing to say to you that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, I want to say tonight that I too am happy that I didn't sneeze. King would say, because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around in 1960 when the students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And since we're New Hope in North Carolina, South Carolina, you probably remember Greensboro, North Carolina. He said, if I had sneezed, I would not have been around in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, we wouldn't have been here in 1963 when the black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the consciousness of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Act. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance a year later in August to try and tell America about a dream that I had. And oh, do we love that dream. You don't want to miss next week as we talk about his dream speech. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama to see the great movement there. And if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. And then he said this, I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. It really doesn't matter what happens to me now. I left Atlanta this morning and we got started on the plane. There were six of us. And then I got to Memphis, and some began to tell me about the threats, to talk to me about the threats that were out there, and what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. What well, I don't know what, what will happen, happen to me now.
1: We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop
0: So, we've hopefully encountered and confronted evil and hatred and sin. Let's call it what it is. America doesn't have a skin problem. America has always had a sin Problem. And the sinfulness of racism in America, in my humble opinion, I just you can disagree, is is the original sin of America. And so we've confronted it today, and we've remembered how it snuffed out a great, great preacher. But it would be so remiss of us if we left you there today and you didn't allow that at all of our campuses to be a fuel and a fire that was ignited inside of you that you and me together, we were going to rise up as a people of God and confront the sin problem of racism and hatred, not with violence, come on, not with anger, not with bitterness, but with with love. Love, love is what changes the world. And some of you are here. Listen, let me just, let me just be completely transparent with you. Some of you are here. If you're white, you're, you're with me and you feel conviction. And, 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 and I've even apologized about racism many times before. Though, you know, I don't take all the responsibility for it. I'm a white man. And we as a nation, I believe, need to own our stuff and say, hey, we're sorry. So maybe you're here and that's where you are. But maybe you're here and you're white and you're still dealing with some racial biases. Maybe you're here and you're black and you're dealing with racial biases. Racism now, I believe, is across the board. It's on all sides, and it's on all ethnic groups. And so maybe you're here, and and, and you're dealing with that. Or maybe you're here, and you're black, or you're brown, and you're just angry. In the same way that white man, white woman needs to deal with racial tendencies or biases of the past, you might need to deal with your anger And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, love is the answer. Love is the answer. If you got your Bibles, just ever so quickly today, would you open them up to 1 John chapter 4? 1 John chapter 4. Listen to what God's Word says. Listen to the intimate nature that the Word of God speaks to us. Dear friends... Dear friends, let us, what church? Let us love one another. For love comes what? From God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Hello. I mean, can the word get any more clear? Regardless of the pigmentation in your skin, if you don't love people, you don't know God, the Bible says. Well, thank you, sister. You don't love God. Because God is love. Verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us us let the people of god say amen. amen amen means so be it um how many of you how many of you uh watched the royal wedding yesterday how many of you how many of you got up at 5 a.m and watched that bad boy be honest at all of our camps, to show of hands yeah i got up at 5 a.m too but i was bass fishing i'm not getting up to watch a royal wedding how many of you watched it on DVR? You're smart. you like, DVR, that bad boy. I don't know if you watched it, but I watched it when I came home. I did. I was, I, was, I was tired from fishing. I vegged out on the couch, and I watched the entire royal wedding. I had no idea who was going to be the speaker that day, but if you watched it, you know that this man right here was the speaker yesterday at the royal wedding. Bishop. <laughs> Bishop. Michael Curie, great guy. And you got to go watch it. If you haven't watched it, you have to watch it. Because this brother got passionate and started preaching. And he started to try to get some high church, stiff and stoic people into it. And they were like, (laughs) dude, I mean, did you see the guy behind him? The guy behind him that was in his clerical attire. And, and, and the brother, Michael Curry, starts preaching. And every, every, throughout the whole homily, he starts looking back at the brother to try to give me something, give me some love. And that, and that, that brother sat over there. I'm like, I'm like, Bishop, I know what it's like, man. I know what it's like. Been there. But here's what's cool. Bishop Michael Curry started his message with a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he said, and at the end of his message, he even returned to it. And that that, that brother was still over there going. He said, start, this was like the first line out of his mouth. We must discover the power of love. The redemptive power of love. And when we do that, We will make of this old world a new world. Love is the only way. So here's the rest of the story. (laughs) They didn't say this on TV yesterday. But here's the rest of the story. I mean... In the embodiment of him teaching yesterday, we actually saw the power of love to make a change in this world. You're like, what you talking about, Willis? Here you go. (laughs) Check this out. Here's in the words of, uh, what was it, Paul? uh, The words of um, the rest of the story. Um, Paul Harvey. In the words of Paul Harvey, here's the rest of the story. In 1619, that's a long time ago, church. In 1619, the first captive Africans arrived in the British colony of Jamestown, Virginia. 399 years later, a descendant of African American slaves and sharecroppers in the great state of North Carolina was the prestigiously invited preacher of the royal wedding that's the power that is the power of love love can change the world and I just got to say to you as a church because by the way love is just not some warm fuzzy sentimental blah 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 love is a verb some of, you, some of you need to hear that right there. Love is a verb. It's gritty. It's tenacious. It gives me a chance to say to you, I am so proud of you, church. I'm so proud of you. Because during our very first week of hope, you blew our minds this last week. And you served beautifully in our communities and the result is absolutely amazing you served all of our communities 1,626 people served now check this out we were shooting for 7,000 hours of service to love the world and love around all of our campuses and look at this number right here how we change the world not returning an eye for an eye not harboring hatred and bitterness but by love like learning to love one another in all of our differences in all of our beautiful differences dealing with the sins of the past confronting biases and sins and attitudes, coming to God at the foot of the cross where where 1 John just said in chapter 4 that God has demonstrated this love and that he sent his son. And at the cross, church, the ground is level. We all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. So if you've looked at your teaching notes, there's a place at the bottom for application. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move through this very quickly. But Some of you are like, okay, what do I do? What do I do? All right, number one, number one, here, here. Receive the love of God. If you're here today or at any of our campuses and you've never received the love of God, today is a day for you to say, God, I give you my life. I receive your love today. The Bible says this, for love comes what? It comes from God. But listen, you got to receive it. Just receive it today. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, at the end of a song that we're about to sing, which, by the way, was Martin Luther King Jr.'s favorite song, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. Remember that one? That was his favorite hymn. He requested it often. They sang it at his funeral. Precious Lord, take my hand. And after that, we're going to give you a chance to receive the love of God. Number two, let God's love change you from the inside out. Once you receive the love of God, let it change you. We were in a group last week. We were in a group back in the green room and we were talking and I asked people to kind of share what's a word or two that comes to your mind as we get into this series. And and one person said, I love this brother, uh, but he said, he goes, people just need Jesus. People just need the love of God. Now, I had to correct him. I had to speak to him for a moment. Because here's the problem. The very same people who exuded racism and sin, did so in the name of God. Just last month, they, op- they opened a, a lynching museum in, uh, in Birmingham. They're saying that their records show that America lynched. I know I'm taking you on an emotional roller coaster today, but we need to go there. They're saying that America lynched. 4,100 and some odd African Americans. That is a joke. It's far more than that. I was born in Sumter, South Carolina. I know what they did to lynchings, and I know what they did with those. Some of those never got accounted for. But here's what's crazy. The same people who lynched African-Americans often had white hoods over their head and did so in the name of God. That should make you mad. So the second point is, listen, receive the love of God, but let it change you. If you're still the same old hard hearted sin scarred person, regardless of what area you struggle with, not just racism, anything, if you're still the same old dude and you've been walking with God supposedly for a decade, something is wrong. God's love changes us. You're looking at a man. Who's been radically changed? In my wild days, I told you I always hated racism. But in my wild days, like I, I didn't care who you were, I would steal from you. I, no, no, it's not. It's, a, it's not a laughing matter. I would break into your home and steal your stuff just to do drugs. I fought all the time. I was in a gang. We would like jump you and beat you brutally just to get your stuff. Evil. But then something happened on October 23rd when I got down on my knees in a jail cell and said, Lord Jesus, come in and fill me. And he changed my heart. Now, now I I can't hate you even if I want to. I can't. Doesn't matter what you did. I'm gonna love you. The love of God. Let it come in and change you. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. Here's number three. Make God's love complete in us. Make. God's love complete in us. Read that verse underneath there. Ready? Go. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. You're like, what do you mean make his love complete in us? Okay. Say this and I'm done. We are a very diverse church. Praise God. But here's what God's been laying on my heart lately. This is not enough. This is not enough. It's time for us to make God's love complete in us. It's time for us to deeply learn to love one another and do life together. Not just come to church together. Praise God we come to church together. But let me just say this very plainly. If you aren't doing life with people who look different than you and you're walking with God, something's wrong. If you Let me say it this way. If you never have someone around your dinner table who looks different than you. Something's wrong. If our life groups, our small groups as a church, don't represent the diversity of what we see on Sundays at all of our campuses, something is wrong. So let's make God's love complete in us. Let's take this church to a whole nother level and truly Learn to love one another. And I, I gotta say something, and I, and I know I need to wrap up. But I don't mean, I don't mean, let's just live colorblind. Have you ever thought about that statement? That I know your heart is right, but that's ridiculous. Can you really live colorblind? And, and, and moreover, should we live colorblind? No. You're all different than me. I'm different than you. And that's how God made us. Instead of saying, I'm just gonna live colorblind, what if we actually learn to value and listen to one another and learn to love and appreciate all, oh, come on, all of our differences together? Again, I know you're hard and you mean well, but that is a statement that should be thrown out. I'm going to live colorblind. No, I don't want to live colorblind. I want to see you in all of your beautiful brownness. I want to see you in all of your beautiful blackness. And I want you to see me in all of my beautiful whiteness. And I want us to get around the tables of fellowship and learn one another's stories and learn to listen and learn to own our own stuff and confess sin and repent so that in doing so, we actually truly learn how to love one another. That is the call. So we're going to sing this song over you, and then I'm going to come out and pray, and we're going to let you be on your way. Well, this was King's favorite song. Marinate right now in the love of God that I've been talking about today. And when we're done, I'll just say a few words and we'll wrap up and send you on your way. May love be the driving force in our church. Now and always. Amen.